You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Apple hit with its second downgrade in a week as analysts caution on slowing iPhone demand. More analysis ahead. And Mobileye plunges as its full-year revenue forecast falls short of Wall Street estimates. Full coverage on the autonomous driving company's guidance ahead. Plus new data painting a bleak picture for Silicon Valley. We'll break down the state of venture capital as startups saw their worst year for funding since 2019. But first, let's check in on these markets. And while the good news is bad news, the resilient job market means maybe we can't anticipate a Fed cut as much as the market had been already pricing in. We're just down only slightly on the Nasdaq, but it is five straight days, longest losing streak since October of 2022. I'm looking at the 10-year yield just backing up again, up seven basis points. Notably, we are seeing a lot of supply coming into the system. Corporate bond sales mean supply issues ahead, and that means, of course, some of that pricing does just fade a little bit. New York crude off by 1.9%. Having seen tensions, of course, Red Sea concerns, Middle East geopolitical concerns, we're actually more worried about a global slowdown at the moment. So supply seems to win out there a little bit at the moment as well. Move on. Have a look at what's happening in terms of Bitcoin, because we're actually getting a little bit more resilience on the day after what had been some big volatility yesterday in the price point. We're at 43,960, so back up, but not quite at that $45,000 level, Ed, that we had seen in the run-up to what everyone anticipates will be the sign-off of these spot Bitcoin ETFs. What have you got, Ed? Well, one big move to the downside, and that is Mobileye. We're down around 25% in the session. If we close at that drop, it will be the biggest drop on record. The story is actually really clear. Mobileye is maker of advanced chip or chip systems that power advanced driver assistance in cars. Think about lane change or cruise control. And their customers have big inventories of these chips, so they've stopped uh, buying. Mobilize given us an outlook for sales in 2024, which is about 1.89 billion at the midpoint. The street looking for 2.58 billion, significantly higher than that. So something has gone wrong here in the cycle for chips as it relates to the automotive uh, sector and advanced driver assistance. We're going to go really deep on this story later in the program. As you mentioned, all eyes on Apple. This is critically important. We're down for a four straight session. $170 billion of market cap shed during that four day period and a second 
second downgrade, Piper Sandler to neutral. And there appear to be basically three things. They're looking at inventories going into the first half of this year. They're worried. They're looking at growth of unit sales going into this first half of the year, and they're worried. And then they're looking at China and the macro picture. I want to bring in Bloomberg intelligence analyst Anurag Rana for his take. Those were the three kind of key points for Piper Sandler. There's some read through from Barclays who had similar concerns when they downgraded earlier this week. Do you share those concerns? Yeah, this is the same exact thing we talked about when they last time reported that the big issue is China and China remains a wild card for them. I, you know, in my view, there isn't any new information from these downgrades. We already knew China was going to be bad. In fact, we have been hearing about it for almost you know two and a half months right now. And when they reported, they really missed that China number by a big amount. So, I mean, I com- I completely agree that sales this year is going to be tepid at the best. But you know, that's not it's not new news on. And first, we have known this for a while. And so why the caution now, Anurag? Is it more evaluation questioning, a fundamental, well, a more macro perspective? We're now seeing perhaps the anticipation of rates not being cut, and we're just questioning valuations across all key tech companies? Or is there something bespoke to Apple in the here and now? No, I think you're right about valuations and the big tech names. Last year, they were really the safe heavens for people to go in when they didn't know what was happening in the economy, what was not happening, what was going to happen with rate cuts. I think it seems at this point we're not going to have a hard landing. And if the economy stays OK and rate increases are not going to happen, um, then you know people do tend to go out of safe havens into more riskier stocks. Anurag, Apple was the only big tech firm or one of the so-called Magnificent Seven that had four straight quarters of sort of decelerating revenue growth. It has the fewest buy ratings of any of those mega caps as per the chart we're showing now. What is it unique to Apple that it was not able to thrive in 2023 and that there is such a change of sentiment now for 2024 different to those other Magnificent Seven? Yeah, I mean the thing. The the most important part is it's a it's an enterprise. It's not an enterprise technology company. It's a consumer technology company. You know, when you look at somebody like an AWS or a Microsoft or uh, Nvidia, they're all going. You know, they they should benefit in the long run or even in the short term because of a lot of the AI investments that are going in, or for that matter, a rebound in corporate IT spending. Apple doesn't work on that end. I mean, that's a consumer technology company, and a completely different from a, you know enterprise technology. We want to thank you, Anurag Rana of Bloomberg Intelligence, really just dovetailing all of what feels very fresh and concerning for Apple, but in the longer term, nothing has changed from January 1st, as you put it. Well, let's get that broader macro perspective and some of the headwinds that are facing Apple and more broadly the markets with Christina Hooper, Chief Global Market Strategist over at Invesco. And Christina, it's always so great talking to you. In fact, it's lucky enough to speak to you before the turn of the new year. And at that point, you were liking emerging markets, but you had some key thoughts on China. And I am interested as to whether you think these headwinds, this worry about, for example, Apple's resilience in China is something that you also are worried about. Well, I think when we look at China, there are certainly some question marks. We just don't know what policy, what stimulus measures will come out this year that could be supportive. Um, We know that the Chinese economy needs to be stabilized. We need to see more growth coming from it. And I think we will get that. It's a question mark about timing and just how effective the policies are going to be coming out of the gate in 2024. And so, of course, it makes sense that those companies that uh, count 
China as an important part of their revenues, as an important part of their customer base, are, are worried. But I think it's a very short-term kind of concern. Obviously, it's going to impact earnings, um, but I don't think it's a long-term problem. It's just a matter of, of getting the stimulus, the policies right, um, improving confidence for consumers and businesses in China, because there's a lot of potential there for that economy. And what about the geopolitics that dovetails into all of that? Because on the one side, Apple's worrying about the resilience of a consumer, but also a pushback against, well, its ownership of Apple by government-related entities, people working within government institutions. Geopolitics, is that a risk for you more broadly? Well, geopolitics can be a fly in the ointment, but it tends to be something that is very short-term in nature. Uh, so there typically are workarounds. Smart companies can figure out workarounds to policy changes, to um, uh, changes in, in um, uh, you know, particular uh, you know, areas of treatment for companies uh, working and, and selling abroad. Um, the key, though, is that it's a short-term problem. And you know, typically a workaround will be found. So I don't think it's it's a problem for the long term. But of course, it can create headwinds and investors are looking in the short term, right? They're reacting and concerned about what earnings are going to look like in the next quarter, the next two quarters. And of course, um, we have seen a nice run up in tech. So it makes sense that we're seeing a bit of a pullback, especially with rates having gone higher. Christina, Caroline and I have been reflecting on a sense of deja vu this week because the conversations we're having into the new year are basically the same as we had throughout 2023. And, I, and that's so true of the Fed. You know, I feel like we started 2023 asking where will the Fed go? We're starting 2024 with confusion about the Fed. And we always remind ourselves in this program, higher rates discount the present value of future cash flows in the context of the technology sector. Is that the case in your analysis and your outlook for this year? Ed, absolutely. Um, rates, uh, monetary policy has driven markets in general, but the reality is that tech has been particularly affected by monetary policy. It's a long duration asset class. And so it's very sensitive to rates. So when they go up, um, it can be a problem. And that's what we're seeing. But I think we have to look at the root cause of why rates have gone up. Um, markets have gotten uh, very easily persuaded by a little Fed talk and a little fear um, and are now convinced that we're going to get a very different Fed than they thought we were going to get just a few weeks ago. And I just don't buy it. Uh, I think what we are going to see is a Fed that cuts rates between 100 and 150 basis points this year, not because the economy deteriorates a lot, but because policy is restrictive um, in the face of significant disinflation. Um, we're going to see progress on disinflation, and so the Fed is going to be forced to cut rates. And I don't think that the movement higher for long rates is going to continue. We use the word technology as a blanket term and learn that not all technology companies are the same. And Anurag Rana, our Bloomberg Intelligence analyst, just made the point on Apple, right? It is not an enterprise company. It's a direct consumer to all intents and purposes. How are you distinguishing within the broad umbrella of technology this year of those you think will thrive and those you think will fall behind? Well, that's a great question. And I would say that it's not so much whether a company is a, a consumer-based company, um, but um, more about 
what exactly the businesses that they're in, right? And there are going to be areas where we're likely to see significant growth, even if uh, economic headwinds are worse than we think. Uh, for example, cybersecurity. That's an area that companies are likely going to spend on no matter what, because it typically ranks among the top fears among CEOs every year. And I think it's, it becomes a, a real concern in terms of branding issue. Um, it can get very high profile. So I, I just want to draw that distinction. Um, it's, it's not about the consumer. It can be more about the regions that companies are selling in, that tech companies are selling in, whether it's to businesses or consumers. Um, but we, I, I do have to say that in general, when we look at tech, valuations are higher um, and there is far more sensitivity to rates. Christina Hooper of Invesco, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much. Okay, this is one of the big movers in the technology sector. Israel's most valuable company by market cap, but US-listed Mobileye down almost 25%. If it closes at that level, biggest drop on record. It's also impacting other names in the semi-space, some of its peers, particularly those that supply chips to the automotive sector. Intel is interesting because remember that Mobileye was spun out of Intel, but Intel retains an 88% stake. This is the story. Let's bring up the numbers. It came out with prelim financials. Mobileye is telling us that in full year 24, revenue will be between 1.86 billion and uh, 1.96 billion at the midpoint 1.89 billion but the street was looking for 2.56 billion the story is that this is a company that makes chips or systems that power advanced driver assistance tools right think about when you're in your car the lane keeping technology the camera technology uh, the cruise technology but a lot of the customers that order those types of chips were panicked in 2020 when we had a supply crunch. So what did they do? They built up inventories. Now they've stopped ordering and they're working through those inventories. That means that in the first quarter of this year, Mobileye is telling us sales will be down 50% Caro year on year. Great setup, great deep dive that we now need to do a little bit more as to why this then caught the market so off guard. Bloomberg Zian King is here to help break all down the chip news that we've got of the day. And just starting on Mobileye and starting on just how hard it is to read the end demand for these sorts of chips for inventory levels more broadly. Why had we not got more direction from Mobileye? Why were we not able to sort of see this coming a little bit clearer? I think the way to look at this is Mobileye is essentially at the top of the stack. Its chips go into the most expensive cars, the cars with the most functions, um, and are probably amongst the most expensive components that go into cars. So from an automaker's perspective, you want to have them on hand so you can sell those cars. But all of a sudden, if you think, oh, I can't sell those models, I have to cut some of those models, and you know the market is going more towards, say, mid-range, then you're going to crash your ordering of somebody like Mobileye to obviously save on the buildup of inventory and, and the costs that are involved in that. So that's probably what's going on here. And we know all about the automakers, particularly in the EV context, telling us we're really scaling back in 2024. The way that I always look at it is that Mobileye also sells to what we call tier ones, but basically companies that make those off-the-shelf components, and those are the ones that built up the inventories. What's also interesting is the reaction in equity markets. All kinds of chip names, particularly those that sell to the car companies, are down. What's the read across there? Yeah, I mean, if you've been looking, if you've been listening 
listening to the conference calls for like the last couple of quarters, people like TI, people like NXP have been asked, hey, the auto market's looking a bit shaky. How can you be so bullish about this? How come your orders are so strong? And what they've been saying is, oh, more chips per car. Don't worry about it. You know, we're not too worried about the, you know, the total number of cars getting sold. Now we're seeing that perhaps they have to worry about the total number of cars being built and being sold. And that's really what's happening here. And it's interesting, Qualcomm getting caught up in that. We're seeing selling pressure on the day. It's, of course, put some focus on the auto industry as it diversifies out of just mobile. But it also has an announcement today on how it's really trying to be owned the VR, AR space as well. What's the latest on that, Ian? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, a, a repeat of a story we've seen several times. When Apple get involved in a category that sort of others have been dabbling in, suddenly it becomes serious. And as we know, Apple's got a, a major product coming to market in this area. So what Qualcomm's trying to do here is to say, look, let's not repeat the history that we saw with the smartphone, with the smartwatch. Let's make sure that our Android-based offerings, our, our Windows-based offerings have a chip that really, really gives the capabilities that will allow the competitors of Apple to have things out there that can, that can fight back and stop Apple just coming, waltzing in and owning the sector. Apple has its own proprietary chip inside the Vision Pro. And as Carrie points out, for, for Qualcomm, this is one of a number of areas moving away from the smartphone. Tell me about the XR2 Plus chip. You know, do we believe it's at the cutting edge in this use case? I mean, the explanation that we had in the story is that up to 12, maybe even more than 12 cameras, 4K uh, projection of, of, of visuals in each eye. Sounds pretty aggressive, sounds pretty exciting. Um, but I think, as Qualcomm said themselves, everything is in the implementation. We absolutely have to see what its customers will do with it. Uh, Bloomberg's Ian King. We call him Mr. Chip, and it's a great way to kick off the new year. Caro. <laughs> Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to talk Tencent, because buying back a record number of shares last month, they seem to make the most of what was an industry-wide sell-off in the name. More on what triggered, of course, the move, the gaming moves by China more broadly. And what's next for investors? This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. 
Okay, time for talking tech. And first up, Microsoft is adding a new key which will activate its AI co-pilot function to its Windows keyboard. Microsoft says the shortcut will help users create images, write emails, and summarize text with the help of AI. It's the first addition to the PC keyboard since the Windows Start key was introduced in 1994. And in an effort to boost domestic output of legacy semiconductors, the U.S. Commerce Department will give microchip technology $162 million. It's second, the second such commitment from the 2022 Chips Act, which set aside billions of dollars to bring chip making back to the United States. While legacy chips are less advanced, they're important and essential for everyday use. Plus, in the latest show of support for U.S. sanctioned companies, China's number two leader made an appearance at a YMTC factory, a chip maker that competes with the likes of Micron and Samsung. The trip comes as China attempts to revive its struggling economy and bolster Chinese investments in the technology sector. Caroline. And also perhaps steady some nerves about the direction of travel for policymaking more broadly versus tech in China. Ed, we want to delve into that particular area because we want to focus on Tencent. Share repurchases by the company have hit a record $1.3 billion. That was in December. And of course, that was kind of making the most of share weakness after China China surprised the gaming industry with some new regulations. Bloomberg's Henry Wren is in London with more. And so is it typical for a company to make the most of buying back when shares have been sold off? Yes, definitely. It's a uh, typical move for companies. But for Tencent, it has really been ramping up its efforts for share repurchase. So um, Bloomberg compiled data show that recently, um, on every single trading day, Tencent has been buying back about total worth of 1 billion Hong Kong dollars of its shares on the Hong Kong trading market. Um, to put that into perspective, before the Chinese gaming regulators issued a set of surprise rules aiming at curbing players playing time as well as uh, spending on video games. Tencent was buying back um, at a pace of about 400 million Hong Kong dollars per single day. So that's an increase of more than 100%. So that really shows that Tencent is ramping up its efforts to restore the market confidence given the recent drops in gaming stocks as well as in Tencent itself recently. Exactly that. It is the mechanism or the reaction from Tencent to what's happened, which is that the new rules or gaming restrictions. There's a wonderful uh, line in the, in the Bloomberg story. Still, for many investors who remain traumatized by a spate of abrupt rules, just remind us where we stand with the, the regulations that came in just before the new year. Yeah, so um, exactly. So many investors that we talked to have been mentioning about all those memories being invoked um, in the 2021-2022 regulatory crackdown campaigns where the Chinese governments target uh, fintech giants such as Ant Financial, the gaming giants including Tencent and many others. And in the latest moves in late December, China's gaming regulators said that it would be issuing a set of draft rules which is still soliciting um, opinions from the society that it would curb uh, video game players' playing time, its spending on um, you know multiple mobile games as well as video games. Of course, it has been uh, badly received by the market. We've been seeing severe drops in shares. But there have been some uh, signs of easing from regulators recently. For example, they've uh, approved 105 video games uh, domestically, including those being run by Tencent as well as NetEase. Also, two media reports recently signaled that a senior official uh, overseeing the gaming regulators have been called to step, step down. 
What, I mean, we've got 30 seconds, Henry, but what is it that investors need to track their eyes on to ensure that they are reading these tea leaves right? Yeah, so um, more signs of easing for sure uh, is comforting, but I think investors at this time do need to see that concrete signs that the government is supporting the sector, not just saying um, that it's supporting its stance on the newspaper, on the state media mm-hmm. at this point. All right, Bloomberg's Henry Ren all across the China tech beat. Great to have you on the program. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. Ed Ludlow here in San Francisco. And I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get a quick check on these markets and the names that are on the move. I start with a micro just to keep you on your toes. What's happening in terms of Mobileye, of course, key faller on the day. This after they guide that the revenue is going to be down some 50%, clearly an inventory backup. And what, of course, is these chips that are focused particularly on the auto sector. So, Ed, we dived into that story a little bit earlier with Ian King, but still a clear market mover to the downside. Interestingly, Apple is managing to be on the downside too. It's got its second straight downgrade this week. Now, of course, this is not to a sell, as we'd seen previously with Barclays, but this is at least going neutral over at Piper Sandler, and they're once again worrying about China, about consumer resilience. So Apple under pressure, it's key because it's, of course, biggest points mover often on some of these benchmarks. One to the upside, and we're going to dig into this in a moment, Peloton to the higher by 9% as it strikes up a partnership with TikTok, can be able to consuming some of their live fitness applications and indeed some of their classes on your TikTok device advice if you have the app there. Meanwhile, let's have a look at what's happening not only in the world of sports, but more broadly in the world of macro. I want to focus in on what's happening with NASDAQ. Is it under pressure? Only slightly, but it is what fifth straight day of losses for the NASDAQ 100, longest losing streak since December 2022. And that is as we see question marks of where the Federal Reserve goes, and also into the mix is geopolitics. Now, interestingly, McDonald's, I wanted to shine a light on this particular company because it has a, a macro read across. They're posting on LinkedIn, the CEO there saying it is having a meaningful impact to the business what's happening in the Middle East. So clearly that is having an effect on consumers and on overall big corporate America. I'm looking at, though, Bitcoin. Let's end on the green, up 2.8%, and actually just clawing back some of those losses that we saw yesterday. Not at 45,000, but 44,000 looks pretty healthy in terms of recent numbers, Ed. This is all about the anticipation of whether we get spot Bitcoin ETF signed off as soon as January the 10th. I think there's still a lot to talk about when it comes to Bitcoin. I don't feel like we have consensus on what the catalyst is here. So let's keep the conversation going with Raghu Yalagada, Falcon X CEO. And, you know, we're only three shows into the year, but, you know, it is not uniform that all of the trading activity is being driven by enthusiasm that the SEC will approve Bitcoin spot ETF. There are others out there, Ragu, that argue this is either a market functioning, uh, an institutional level impact on the market. Where do you stand in this New Year's debate? Yeah, uh, thanks so much for having me. And uh, first and foremost, uh, the context for the market, we are seeing some of the highest open interest in the market since the collapse of Terra Luna, which is more than a year. So in that context of very high open interest, now there were a couple of sparks over the last 24 or 48 hours. The one spark was the matrix board report saying that ETF approval is probably not likely. And in the context of very high open interest and leverage, that spark triggered a bunch of liquidations. So liquidations all to the tune of like you know $230 million in uh, Bitcoin and ETH uh, alone. Now, one of the t- your question, one of the big sentiments that we are hearing, so we checked again with some of the largest hedge funds, asset managers and the crypto native funds, 
what do you think about Bitcoin ETF? And consistently we are hearing that Bitcoin ETF is very likely going to be approved. Now, the one very prominent question that's on everyone's mind is, okay, is this priced in? Mm. Now, what we are hearing is we've been spending time with a lot of our partners as well on this, including Falconx Research. What we are hearing is most people are pricing the net inflows into Bitcoin ETF in the first week or so at one or two billion dollars. So if the net inflows are less than one or two billion dollars, it'll have an adverse effect on the price. And if it's more than one or two billion dollars, it'll have much more positive effect on the price. So that's the sentiment uh, that we're hearing. But Just remind us, Raghu, like for many who come into this and think that there's already a Bitcoin ETF, it's a futures ETF. Why are we going to see such seismic move from institutional players, retail players to get in on a spot Bitcoin ETF vis-a-vis futures? Yeah. So we are hearing two main things, Caroline. The first thing is, if you look at the Bitcoin futures ETF and the architecture underneath that, there is uh, a futures rollover cost that mm. uh, the instrument incurs on a monthly basis. And that's a very profitable trade for people who know that Bitcoin ETF futures uh, issuers are going to come transact in the market uh, in, in a very predictable way. So that the futures rollover cost is a meaningful cost. So that's one. The second thing, we've been speaking to uh, some of the retail investment advisors and um, also the statistics on the self-directed retail. There are RIAs who cannot transact in futures-based ETFs. Now, for the first time, the RIA market, which is about $30 trillion market, will have access to a Bitcoin spot ETF, which is much more efficient in a very seamless way. So those are the two reasons that we are hearing consistently on why a spot ETF is better. But granted, both have their pros and cons and nuances. It's really interesting that you've given us this number, Raghu, the fact that you're talking to your clients, those big investors and hedge funds that already dabble in a world of crypto and managing to pull out, what what did you say, one to two billion dollars in terms of inflows over the first, say, week that the ETF goes live. What if that date is delayed? What if you said it's likely that these spot ETFs do get signed off? But if they're not, does it ultimately Mm -hmm. matter in the short term to the price point? So I'll break that into two parts, Caroline. The first part is like, uh, what are the odds, right? It is very likely that a Bitcoin ETF is going to be approved. Now, the nuance there is there could be an approval with caveats that could delay the launch of, uh, that could delay the time between an approval and actual instrument uh, traded in the secondary markets. So that is one possibility, but we don't expect the delays to be very, very long, right? Given the grayscale verdict that came out in October, uh, there were very little or few reasons where the caveats could delay it by months and months. So that is one part of it. Now, the second part, what if this doesn't happen, right? I fundamentally think 2024 is very well set up for uh, crypto. You have the Bitcoin ETF, new cycle and the expectation, the optimism around it. You have halving coming. There is a major Ethereum upgrade. And earlier in the show, we were talking about the VC funding in general being a little slow. But if you look at uh, Masari's recent report on crypto funding, quarter on quarter, the crypto fundraise grew 80% to about 380 billion. So if you add all these things, even like, you know, with ETF potential delays, it's very unlikely that it won't be approved. So even with potential ETF delays, the year is very well set up is what uh, we feel. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you said the year is very well set up for crypto. 
broadly. You didn't say Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And this is the bit that I'm struggling to understand when it becomes more than Bitcoin. So on a market capitalization basis, Bitcoin's 49% of the global digital assets market, right? It almost acted as the proxy for an industry that was about, in 2023, scandal, you know, FTX, what happened with Binance towards the end. Do you think other uh, tokens, other digital assets, other use cases will get some limelight this year? Yeah. The first of the year, we think, will be dominated by Bitcoin. Right. Bitcoin, the regulatory clarity around the asset, the institutional interest that we are hearing and actually seeing, right? I mean, we're seeing some record volumes. Despite everything that happened in the space, 22 to 2023, our volumes tripled. And a lot of it is around the excitement around Bitcoin. So the first half of the year, we expect um, a lot of activity around Bitcoin and the Bitcoin domination continuing. But towards the later part of the year, that's where it gets interesting. Um, Ethereum could potentially vie for uh, an ETF approval as well, spot ETF approval. So the new cycle around Ethereum and some of the upgrades coming with Ethereum are things that uh, institutional investors are watching. But we think in terms of five to 10 years Mm -hmm. and back to the core of the show, which is the technology, the reason why I jumped into crypto is crypto is perhaps the first use case of uh, tokenization. And if you look at the number of tokenization investments and the subtle advances that are happening, it's meaningful. So beyond 2024, I think the story is going to be about tokenization more than just one uh, instrument within crypto. You're in hardware at Motorola, you're in Google, leading product management over at Chrome OS. You, of course, made that diversion into the world of crypto. And thanks for telling us exactly why. Raghu Yaralagada, he joins us, Falcon X, CEO on the Spot Bitcoin ETF. Meanwhile, coming up, look, we're going to go back to what we were just hearing from Raghu, who was talking about the VC community, perhaps being a bit down in the dumps. Max Grazer from CDR Capital is going to be on. What's he seeing in the world of VC for 2024? This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival.
Yet more data painting the bleak picture for Silicon Valley that was 2023. The value of VC deals in the US last year fell to levels not seen since well, 2019, according to PitchBook. And while investors poured money into AI startups, the rest of the industry pretty much founded. Here to break it all down, Bloomberg's Sarah McBride. And I guess we're bracing ourselves for some pretty lousy numbers and they're living up to expectations. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the numbers uh, for 2023 were bad. There's no way around it. Then again, back in 2019, we thought the numbers looked okay, and that's back where we are right now, levels just a little bit higher than in 2019. So uh, investors at venture firms invested less money in startups, and then they also raised a lot less money from their backers. So no matter which way you looked at it, it was a pretty gloomy year. One tiny bright spot is that the fourth quarter numbers fell less than in the earlier quarters. So it could be an indication that things are starting to stabilize. That's kind of the dollar measure of the US venture industry. But it's interesting if you look globally because not all markets behaved in the same way. You know, the drop in the US was, I think, a two thirds drop from the prior year, but globally a half. And there were bright spots, Sarah. What were the bright spots? Okay, it's a very tiny bright spot because it's such a small part of the overall venture market. But in Latin America, funding was actually up, but that's in part because it's so small that one outsized fund can move the market. And last year we saw the announcement of what is a huge fund for Latin America, $500 million fund run by former SoftBank executive Marcelo Claure and Shuniata, and that was enough to really boost things in Latin America. But that's just $2 billion out of a market that's well over $150 billion. All right, Bloomberg, Sarah McBride with the latest pitch book data out this morning. Let's keep the conversation going in today's VC Spotlight, bringing CRV general partner Max Gazer. Let's bring up the data again, the, the, the U.S. data specifically, 2023, the year that was. You can show the chart and you can go over the dollar values, but what story does that chart tell you about your industry? Um, thanks, Ed. Uh, I think it's a very simple explanation, which is that the growth capital markets in uh, 22 and 23 basically dried up. And so if you look at it by, by dollar amount, um, that would explain this, the, the drop off from 21, which is to explain that, you know, most, most VC activity in the growth stage pre-IPO has slowed down. In the early stages where CRV operates, the activity is still very strong. Um, and many of the companies that we funded, for example, last year in 23 are still in stealth, which wouldn't have been represented by the data there. So it, it feels all within sort of um, the bounds of what's natural and what feels right. Uh, we're very excited about 24 and the IPO window possibly opening up to reaccelerate VC. Let's go one layer deeper. You talked about some of your early stage investments being in stealth. The other story of 23 continuing from 22 was layoffs. All of these talented people were laid off from big tech companies. And we had evidence on this program, at least, that they went and started businesses. Was that the main catalyst? Well, um, you know, the, the, with respect to the layoffs, I think a lot of that was just right-sizing. A lot of these companies had exceeded what uh, was expected of them as a, a, in the public markets. And so 
uh, a, a lot of that was um, just sort of the natural right-sizing of those companies. To the point that you made about uh, you know, start, people leaving and starting new companies, that's absolutely a catalyst. Uh, we, we think that will continue in 24 with some liquidity in the IPOs uh, and people you know, having an opportunity to start new companies uh, with that resource. When you're looking at a potential IPO window, are there certain names that you're anticipating? Do they have to be AI-related names? Can they be ones that have been growing? Because many of us sort of have seen these companies just having to start to right-size their own valuations, having taken money back in the heady days of 2021 on a private market basis. Well, Caroline, there's there's over um, 100 companies uh, when, when we last counted that I think are IPO ready. We have close to a dozen in our own portfolio at CRV that are, you know, on that path. Whether it's you know this year or, or sometime later, um, we think that based on how the public market reacts to some of these these public uh, offerings it's going to change the narrative, right? And so I think that many are anticipating and, and expecting uh, AI you know, IPOs to drive the narrative. It could be something else. But uh, what we've seen over our history in 53 years is that the public markets certainly influence how uh, even early stage VCs think about opportunities and where, where you know, public investors reward companies the most. Uh, we think data and AI are going to be front and center, and mm. there's a long pipeline of great companies that we anticipate will do well. I'm interested in the way in which you said in the early stage, look, things are still active, checks still being written. Are they being written at the right sort of valuations from your perspective? How is that right-sized? Or are you seeing sort of bigger funds muscling in an earlier stage investments because everyone's too worried to try and write some of the larger series, later series checks that are necessary? Yeah, well, it's, it's been well documented that the valuation correction that the public markets saw has not quite yet trickled down into the private markets. Um, and so what you see is VCs being a little bit more selective, uh, paying the price that the market bears, but maybe doing fewer of them or you know, being a little bit more selective with the criteria required to underwrite those. Uh, and so, again, I think that's just a, a normal cycle until the IPO window opens and VCs can sort of document and demonstrate results and raise more you know, capital to fuel the next generation of companies. And so I think that liquidity window is very important. I want to take a look at the, your portfolio at CRV. Like, you know, half the job of an early stage investor is writing checks for, for new companies. But there are those companies that you backed almost a decade ago. And you must now be sitting there and thinking, what should I advise them to do in this environment? Is there one blanket rule at the moment for all of them? Um, you know, growing responsibly, right, I think is sort of the, the, still the sentiment this year. Uh, you know, many of the companies that uh, we've, we've, we've demonstrated here, uh, Airtable, Iterable, Vercel, Cribble, all companies that we invested in the very early stages when the company was in, you know, a few people. Uh, and so it's very rewarding to, to see the companies grow. And we want to make sure that we're creating companies of enduring value. So once those companies go public, that they can continue to compound growth. Um, but, you know, I think the theme this year is to make sure that uh, we're ready for the IPOs. All right, CRV General Partner Max Gazer, thank you. So over the past-
past year, Instagram has released a slew of new features. Avatars, stickers, new verification program, and bonus program. And that's a top of dozens of behind-the-scenes algorithm changes to try and compete, of course, with TikTok. Now, those changes make the app more about the user's interests rather than who they actually follow. And we'll shed a little tear, therefore, for some of the creators who depend on the platform for their livelihoods. And that just makes it harder and harder to predictably reach their fan base and therefore, of course, Ed, generate some real income. Well, speaking of competition, particularly with TikTok, it's not only Instagram's worst nightmare. It might become Amazon's too, because TikTok is aiming to grow the size of its US e-commerce business tenfold to as much as $17.5 billion this year, according to sources. An ambitious target that sets up a clash, not just with Amazon, but also some of the Chinese-owned outfits, Timu and Sheen. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Alex Barinka, one of the bylines in this report. That merchandise volume number, Give me the reporting on it. That's big. Yeah, 17.5 billion for the U.S. for TikTok Shop U.S., which you'll recall just fully launched right before the holiday season. I want to put that in perspective, Ed. Earlier last year, my colleagues and I also broke that globally, all of TikTok was looking to sell $20 billion worth of merchandise in 2023. So that U.S. number for 2024 is already uh, close to and edging out that global number. In 2023, the vast majority of that volume came from sales in Southeast Asia. So this is a really big move for TikTok, and it's probably the first big tech social media company that might have Amazon actually worried. TikTok has really gained its presence here in the U.S. as an entertainment platform. This year, they've been rolling out an interesting strategy to get people actually purchasing. And the company told me that over the holiday month, over Black Friday and Cyber Monday, they had about 5 million new people buy something on the app here in the U.S. So a big push for them and a very ambitious target for 2024. E-commerce front and center. So too is sort of using it for live programming. And what was interesting is Peloton today, I mean, shares up about 9% on the fact that they're doing a deal with TikTok and going to be offering some of their live classes through the platform. Will e-commerce be sort of interweaved into that, do we think? How much is this about drawing our attention more and more to the app? It will. And I did some reporting last year. TikTok, remember, um, really started with live stream commerce in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia and Malaysia. Its sister company, Doyen, under the ByteDance umbrella, uh, does live stream commerce in China, where people get on live videos and they sell things. It's incredibly popular in the Asian market. TikTok tried to port that over, first to the UK and then to, to the US. But users here are just not willing to tune in at the same time to shop. So they actually split their strategy. They said, hey, let's focus on developing live so people tune in for live videos, even if it's without shopping, while at the same time rolling out our shopping business. This Peloton deal, Caroline, definitely falls in the bucket of that uh, uh, that live push. Alex Marinka, always on top of all things social media. We thank you so much. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Don't forget to check out the podcast. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.